This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot BioProven 40 OS. The nitrogen you need, now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Three of the four biggest bank failures in U.S. history have occurred in the past two months. Although those banks may seem to be far removed from farm country, is there a reason to be concerned? What market factors have caused the problem, and does it have an impact on agricultural and rural banking? We discuss that topic, plus climbing interest rates and business strategies in the current economic climate. Those are our topics for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. One of the biggest and most important expenses I have as a corn producer is nitrogen. That's why I was interested in Pivot Bio and have been a customer for four years now. Pivot Bio Proven OS provides a more reliable method for delivering nitrogen to corn. One Pro Box of Pivot Bio Proven 40 OS has the equivalent on seed nitrogen to replace as much as 1,200 gallons of anhydrous, 1,700 gallons of UAN 28%, or 5 tons of urea. Pivot Bio recently completed the broadest U.S. single season in plant nitrogen study ever conducted. To date, side-by-side comparisons show Pivot Bio plants have 14% more implant nitrogen and 12% more biomass compared to untreated plants, demonstrating the nitrogen efficiency of Pivot Bio products. To learn more, just talk to your local sales rep or go to pivotbio.com. The Fed raised interest rates once again last week. The increases over the past year mean that many farming operations are paying more interest on their operating loans and may be recalculating fixed asset purchases. This week, we caught up with Joe Caffey, president and CEO of First State Bank in Middlebury, Indiana. We discussed what he sees in their area and the national trends that all of us should be watching. Joe Caffey joins me. He is president and CEO of First State Bank uh, based in Middlebury, Indiana, Joe, it's good to uh, have you on the show again. We talk regularly. Maybe we should start with this. Here we are in early May. What does planting look like out your way right now? Well, we're in the first week of May, and we have been cold and wet other than about three days of uh, surprisingly warm temperatures two weeks ago. Uh, As of this morning, we're probably about 10% planted in north central Indiana, but I expect uh, over the next 24 hours that could double or triple. With what you've experienced there in your area, are you coming off good yields these past few years, or what do a lot of the folks there think about what's happened in recent memory? We we have. We've been blessed here locally the last two years, especially last year, was relatively strong uh, compared to historical yields. And so we're expecting another good year. We don't have any reason not to. I think a lot of uh, producers in our area have used the last couple of years to really build some equity into their balance sheets, and they're glad they did, and the bank's glad they did. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people have been able to build equity, and we'll get into this here in a moment. Uh, are a lot of them still fairly optimistic, or do they think that a lot of that equity is about to erode away, uh, given the current market? Yeah, that, that's that's a good question. Some have leveraged the equity as land prices continue to escalate very rapidly in our area. Um, but, uh, you know, most of the farmers I've talked to, and I did talk to a couple this morning, are pretty optimistic about the planting season and the growing season. 
we encourage them to lock in profit as profits available in the market. So if they've been able to do that, I think they feel pretty good about where they're at. We'll get to some of those things in a moment, but one thing that I would thought that I would jump to off the top here, which is certainly national news, but I'm interested in how it filters down to you locally, what you see at your bank, but you know three of the four largest ever U.S. bank failures have occurred in the last two to three months here, Silicon Valley, uh, First Republic, Signature Bank. So are people in your area looking at that and saying, oh, no, I need to be worried? And, and maybe I should just simply ask you, should I be worried or should I not? And, and why? You know, I think it's a good time to have a conversation with your individual bank and, and see what they're thinking. At the end of the day, the most recent rash of, of bank fails or failures are really balance sheet issues as it relates directly to liquidity. Credit quality across the nation and here in North Central Indiana, especially at our bank, is outstanding. So oftentimes when we think of bank failures in the historical context, it's because our loan issues or loan repayment issues. That's not the case. This is simply a liquidity issue. And the banks that have failed so far have all been niche banks, uh, a little bit different in each case, but each have catered to companies and individuals who have large deposit accounts far exceeding FDIC insurance limits. Uh, conversely, during the pandemic and after, those banks all tried to find some margin and so put, put an awful bunch of money uh, into their bond portfolio. And as rates have, have gone up, driven by the Federal Reserve, the value of that bond portfolio has dec decreased, making uh, shareholders a little excited about what's going on in those particular banks. So as they took money out, those banks were forced to sell bonds in their portfolio because they simply had no other source of liquidity, had to realize those losses, and before too long were simply out of money or liquidity. You know, you mentioned something there about uh, the deposits and being over $250,000 in account. I don't know what conversations you've had or your bank staff have had with people individually, but some farms, because they have done fairly well, and you mentioned build up equity, may have over that in their account at times. Should we be having conversations and thinking about this differently? What conversations are you having with some folks? There's no question that a farm of any size or really any business of any size, certainly at any given point during the year is going to exceed, if not always, $250,000. So yeah, we have had conversations with those clients who have those uninsured deposits here at First State Bank. Uh, we talk about titling accounts differently. We talk about uh, some other outlets we have for some reciprocal deposits to spread out and get more FDIC insurance when and where it's appropriate. But you would we be correct in saying that for folks that need to have that conversation, there are ways that they can do that and be able to feel hopefully assured that that money's insured, correct? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the first step is talking with your banker and ask if the bank is publicly traded in any shape, form or fashion, ask to see their balance sheet and see what's going on there. So take a look at that bank. Um, it could be that they're a long, long way from failing or having an, or, or not having enough liquidity. You know, we stress test our liquidity uh, monthly here at First State Bank. We have liquidity sources we have not tapped into. And a lot of community banks that farmers are doing business with are probably in that same boat. The second step, if you are still concerned about that lack of FDIC insurance above the deposit threshold, have that conversation about maybe retitling some of the accounts 
um, in, in different corporate names, LLC names, spousal names, things of that nature. And then uh, sort of the tertiary opportunity there is for some of those reciprocal deposits. Uh, we, we place some of those excess deposits with other banks and they reciprocate by doing the same with us. So we can ensure that those who are concerned are fully insured by a full faith of the federal government. You mentioned that those bank failures were more of a balance sheet issue and not necessarily the loan quality. So as we think about loan quality, I think that most in agriculture would say right now that many operations have done all right, but we see margins beginning to erode. We certainly see inputs that have gone up. So what types of conversations are you all having with farmers right now about we may be transitioning into a time in which profits aren't as great or are headed down? How do we keep that loan portfolio in good shape, so to speak? Yeah, you know, um, at this point in time, the conversation is really focused on how can we help you lock in profits along the way. Now, rising interest rate costs aren't helping lock in those profits, but I think that's something important to producers to consider. If you went ahead and did your budgets at the, in January, your interest expense budget probably looks different than what the actual interest expense is going to be now in light of the Fed raising rates again this week. Take a look at that line of credit, see what you're paying on that, and then adjust your budget accordingly. So your break-even number may have easily moved since the time you locked in your input prices or cash rent contracts, maybe even the fourth quarter of last year. Because interest rates are higher than they were, if I have an operating loan, it's probably gone up maybe three percentage points. Depends, uh, you know, when you lock some of those types of things in. Should I look at doing something different than I have uh, before? And, and maybe you want to discuss the difference between my annual operating loan versus looking at some things that would be more fixed assets, whether it be land or buildings, and which I have a loan that's going to, to have a longer uh, time that I'm going to be paying on that. How should I look at things in a new interest rate environment? I think that's ex especially important for, for people who may have gotten lazy and are carrying some longer term assets on their line of credit. I'm not pointing fingers at any farmers that I know of any stretch of the imagination, but but it tends to happen, especially year end time when we're when we're doing some last minute tax preparation, where we, we may sneak a, a planter or, or a tractor or even some uh, longer term items onto a line of credit. Now's a great time to go in and talk about because the yield curve is certainly inverted. And so there are probably opportunities to lock in longer term money on more fixed assets like equipment, but especially real estate, as opposed to carrying them on the higher interest rate of a line of credit in today's market. So you mentioned the inverted yield curve, uh, and we are quite inverted right now. The uh, price that we can get for a, a three-month uh, treasury bill compared to a 10-year note. So what should we make of this? Because usually when it's inverted and at that level, uh, some statistics I've seen 75% chance of recession within the next 18 months. What are you seeing? Well, you know, we've been talking about that probably for more than 18 months is when is the other shoe going to fall here? When will we be in a recession? I can tell you that on Main Street, Middlebury, Indiana, we're not seeing that yet. Unemployment remains exceedingly low. We're the RV manufacturing capital of the world. Uh, there has been some slowdown. Uh, in orders on RVs, it seems to be kind of cyclical. Uh, and so instead of mass layoffs, we're working three or four days a week as opposed to not working, which is a good thing. Uh, we closely monitor 
that part of our portfolio for past dues as well as extensions on lines of credits and things like that. We're just not seeing red flags at this point here locally. Um, you look on a national scale, there are certainly red flags, in, in, including and maybe especially this lengthened period of an inverted yield curve, which you're exactly right, normally points to a recession. So I would not be surprised if we do officially enter a recession in the next six to nine months. Um, as with every time in my career we've been into any kind of recession, they're telling us it's different this time. <laughs> well, what what is different, if anything is different, do you think this time? Well, the unemployment is one thing. Uh, their, their jobs numbers came out this morning. Uh, they were they were especially bright, much better than anyone thought. Uh, we saw the stock market come back a little bit this morning after the news of yesterday and some of the super regional banks that went down in value after the most recent bank uh, near failure, I guess, takeover by Chase um, at the end of the day for First Republic. But uh, that's the main thing is the jobs reports. Uh, consumer spending remains relatively strong in relation to where we're at in the rate cycle. Uh, so th those are the main categories I would say today. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. You know, we hear talk certainly of re recession and some of the indicators point that way. But when you look at agriculture and farming, does a national recession end up impacting agriculture the way it does the rest of the economy? To, in my mind, sometimes those two work differently. In fact, if you look at commodities over this past year, the commodities were the one thing that went up when everything else, for the most part, went down. Yeah, that, you know, the last few, it's, it's certainly been an inverse relationship and, uh, and a general economic slowdown or even recession has been relatively good for agriculture, or at least not as harmful uh, for the farming business as it has been for other sectors. And we are often looked to as a leading indicator in this part of the world because of our dominance in the RV space. Um, we're not seeing that at this point in time, and our, and our agricultural producers are, are acting accordingly. They're planting the crops they, they plan to plant, and they're optimistic and looking to the markets for a, for a winning growing season. If I remember correctly, you have a pretty good mix of not only crop growers, but also you have uh, livestock, poultry, so forth, in housing. Has there been much difference between those with livestock and crops, or has it generally been a good economy for both? So the, the primary, uh, it's primary poultry, duck, and chicken production, both organic and conventional in this part of the world. Most of our growers are, are contract growers. They're, you know, providing barn lease space and labor for these operations. We have seen a slowdown in new construction uh, for poultry production. There's no doubt about that. Uh, having said that, they're all st still getting paid by the integrator, and those loans continue to perform uh, exceedingly well. Interest rates we mentioned earlier have gone higher, and the Fed raised their rates again another quarter point here recently. We hear talk of a soft landing, a hard landing, and then something new this last week I heard of no landing, that uh, things just continue to go higher. I hadn't heard that one yet. How are we doing so far? And, and maybe you aren't necessarily in the prediction business, but I am interested in what First State Bank sees about, okay, where, where are we headed on this, this landing and how the Fed pulls all of this off? So far, we budgeted pretty close to what's actually happening. We, we budgeted rate increases through mid-year. I don't know if this is going to be correct or not. We budgeted that uh, rates will go down here uh, probably near the end of the third quarter. Uh, there'll be a slow trickle downward. 
having said all that, I'm a firm believer that the Fed often overreacts on both ways, um, going up and going down. So I guess that remains to be seen. A lot of the economists that we listen to and we base our forecasts and our budgets on, um, that's where we got the information that we think uh, probably, uh, I guess that'd be called a soft landing in the third and fourth quarter of this year as opposed to no landing. Yeah, you, you know, you have those RVs there. Does that give you an interesting outlook into what's going on in the economy? Because I would think with with so many people buying RVs or not buying RVs and you're the manufacturing capital of the country, how does that really give you a good gauge on what's happening out there? You know, I often say that when I go to uh, state or national banking conferences with bank CEOs, I'm a popular guy when they know I'm from Elkhart County, Indiana, because we're normally on the, the leading edge of both both ways, whether the economy is on the upswing or on the downturn. So it does give us an interesting prism to look at the economy through. Um, we populate our board with professionals from the RV industry, and I've got that network of individuals I talk to 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 get my arms around, you know, what are orders doing? Where are we at in the process? One good thing about that industry, the supply chain has certainly loosened up compared to where we were during COVID. So they're able to get the raw materials into their shop to assemble RVs. The trick is now uh, selling them and finding someone to finance them for the buyer. What have we learned over the last few years? I noticed that uh, now I think the WHO has officially declared the emergency state of COVID over, although I think for a lot of us, we we hopefully have moved through that here over the last year or so. But, you know, as we reflect now on three years ago when a lot of that ramped up and started, do you find that not only the bank does business differently, but your ag producers have done things differently? You mentioned supply shortages there and so forth. Have we done anything differently or are we back where we, we were? And not that that's good or bad. I'm just curious what you have seen over those ti- that time. Yeah, I'll start with the ag industry. I think a lot of our producers have, uh, have maybe fanned out their field of suppliers as a result of it. You know, uh, growing up on a farm in northeast Indiana, my dad had his go-to suppliers every single year that, that they utilized. Um, I think a lot of producers were in that same boat and maybe were even second or third generation users of certain suppliers. COVID forced them to go find new suppliers, which I think is good for competitiveness when it comes to pricing of those inputs. So I think that's a nice change we've realized in agriculture. Um, on the banking side, there's no question that COVID drew, you know, really forced our hand to upgrade our technology and the rapidity of the adoption of that technology for consumers. During the first two weeks of our of our lobby shutdown back when, when COVID was was hot and heavy, our online banking subscribers increased about 210% in two weeks. Uh, all those folks have not come back into doing face-to-face business because we've done such a good job of, of encouraging them to use their cell phone to bank with us. That has directly impacted the way that these banks with liquidity issues actually failed Um, because it used to be there would be a physical line out the front door of a bank in the 1930s or so when there were runs on those banks. Today, those runs happened electronically. Business owners were were, were transferring that money. In fact, um, when the first when the first one hit in California, Saturday evening, I was spending time with my family. I got a text from a friend who had a significant amount of money in Silicon Valley Bank asking me how to get it out of there. Um, and so 
I walked a fine line there as a banker, um, but uh, it all moved electronically, quite honestly. And so uh, while it's been good for the cost of doing business from a retail function for many, many banks, there's a certain danger there when money can, can leave almost before the management team knows it's leaving. Yes, things happen very quickly. You know, I was just at a conference where, speaking of Silicon Valley Bank, they said that 90% of the deposits of that bank were over $250,000 per account. So perhaps a little different than some places we bank. Did you find, though, that have your deposits in general gone up? I know a lot of community banks would say during this time, we can go even back to the beginning of COVID. For the general part, a lot of community banks ended up with more deposits uh, over that period of time. It's been a wild ride on the deposit side of the balance sheet since COVID started, because during COVID, we had massive gains on the deposit side of the bank. Um, You know, the government was was providing lots of stimulus dollars in a variety of ways to businesses, to individuals, to ag producers along the way. Many of them chose to sit on that money in the bank uh, because there's just a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace at that point in time. Fast forward to today, a lot of that liquidity has left lots of banks because people have spent down the government stimulus and it wasn't replaced by other stimulus uh, along the way. As we sit today, uh, yeah, we have uh, grown deposits again with the recent bank failures. Uh, I think people in general have migrated from some of the the large regional banks similar in composition to the banks that failed. Uh, they feel good about banking on Main Street, and we're we're happy at First State Bank and a lot of community banks to take advantage of that situation and, and provide them good vehicles and safe places to park some funds. On the flip side of that, I'm interested in conversations you have with people that do have deposits there, and they say, well, interest rates have gone up, so how do I get more out of the money that I have deposited then? There's no question about that. We've had that conversation uh, pretty pretty often here recently. And so we have had to raise deposit rates um, at the same time as loan interest rates have gone up. What is interesting is there's a little bit of retraining of large deposit customers because they used to call the bank and say, what's your 40-year CD rate? What's your five-year CD rate? I want the highest rate. Well, today that's a seven-month CD because of that inversion of the yield curve. Um, and I've had someone tell me that's illegal. We can't do that. But I'm, I assure them that uh, we can do that. Uh, based on what the market demands at present. So we, we have ran some short-term CD specials uh, to, to help people get some higher yield on those funds. Uh, but we have to be careful and not lock too much in on the backside in the long term as well. As I mentioned before, we budget these rates maybe crawling back the other way. Joe, before we run out of time, just interested in your general thoughts as we look ahead to the rest of this year here. Of course, we have no idea where crop uh, prices may go and yields may go and so forth. But the conversations you and your lending team are having with farmers out there, uh, what types of things are on people's minds and, and on your minds? Well, right now it's the, it's the weather situation. The wet, cold soils we've had recently are at the top of the mine. And so talking him through that. But but again, those interest rate discussions, where are these rates going? What do we do? What do we need to lock in? And then we do have, because of the elevated price of, of farm ground here locally, there, there are a lot of auction signs that popped up last winter. We anticipate more during the growing season. And so um, I spent some time on the phone yesterday with, with a longtime farm customer, just wanting to know, is my powder going to be dry enough come this fall that I can they can afford that 80 acres next door that I've always wanted and now is going to come up for sale. So we're starting to have those conversations well in advance 
of those sales taking place. I usually do ask you, uh, land values out there, anything selling and what is it selling for in that area? Probably the most recent here, uh, February, March, um, the, the broad range, there, there was some uh, pretty wet, heavy soils, about 17.5 an acre, uh, 30-some acres sold, and then some larger pieces uh, over to the west of uh, this immediate market was closer to the $25,000 range for uh, dry land, really high productive soils. So definitely still in the uptick. The higher interest rates haven't put a lid on it yet. There's just enough equity out there to keep the, the land market strong. Is that right? Uh, not yet. They have not. They uh, haven't seemed to matter. There's equity, uh, there's cash, and uh, people are investing accordingly. Joe, I always appreciate the time. It's, I guess we could always say it's interesting times we live in, but the interest rates uh, have gone up and down, and we've had bank failures to talk about, but hopefully uh, we are strong where we're at. Uh, I think we are. At, uh, you did a good job of talking through that, but always appreciate the time to get to visit with you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook and Instagram, and you can hear these shows in a variety of ways as well at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. If you miss one of our shows, just go to those platforms and go back and catch other topics of interest as well. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot BioProven 40 OS, the nitrogen you need now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com.